0: I next met with Dr. Sergio Giralt for an update on multiple myeloma from ASCO. And to begin, he commented on an Italian study addressing one of the most debated issues in the field. In some or all patients who are transplant candidates, is a rational alternative to harvest stem cells but delay transplant until a later time? It's a
1: presentation that was done by the group of Dr. Palumbo, Mario Bocadora was the one who presented it here. Antonio Palumbo had presented it previously at the EBMT meeting. It is the first of three studies that is looking at the role of early versus late transplantation in the context of immune modulatory drugs and bortezomib. In this case, it was primarily every patient got a lenalidomide dexamethasone induction, and then they were randomized to either receive Six cycles of a chronic alkylator steroid imid combination that was non transplant, the famous melphalin prednisone lenalidomide, versus two cycles of high dose melphalin. The important part this was a very well powered study. Approximately 400 patients were randomized initially, and then 202 were randomized to the non transplant arm, the melphalin prednisone lenalidomide and 200 were randomized to the transplant arm, which was two cycles of high-dose melphalan. The median follow-up now is approaching two years, and although there wasn't a, let's say, a dramatic improvement in response rates for the high-dose melphalan, there was a significant improvement in progression-free survival. So if we translate into the conversation, Mrs. Smith, you've had myeloma, you've responded well to this induction regimen that we've given you, We now have to decide whether we're going to give you either continued therapy or whether we're going to give you two cycles of high-dose therapy. If you opt to go to the high-dose therapy, the chance of you having to deal with your disease over the next two years is less than one in four. If you opt to go to the chronic suppressive therapy, the chance of you having to deal with your disease is one in three with a similar overall survival. And... Obviously, the progression-free survival was better for the high-dose melphalan arm. This is the first of many studies, as I've said. We would look for the other two studies. One is the French Boston study, the French Dana-Farber study, and the other one is a study that's being performed by the German cooperative
0: group. I guess one thing about the French, the IFM Dana-Farber study, is it uses triple therapy, or at least it uses bortezomib, which this trial didn't.
1: And I think your point is very important, and that's why this trial is not 100% translatable into the North American experience, because most patients here would receive a bortezomib or a protosome inhibitor, including induction regimen as part of their prior to transplant.
0: And I guess another thing, and again, this is used in the IFM Dana-Farber study, is maintenance, in that case, lenalidomide. And that's another factor that might sort of alter the ratio here. Correct. And I think As we talk to the community physicians,
1: I always advise patients transplant's a choice. It's not a necessity. It's a choice that patients make based on the recommendations we physicians give them based on our perception of what the natural course of the disease is with or without transplant. I think that the preponderance of data would suggest that early transplantation may be beneficial and for sure it doesn't seem to be deleterious. But that we're coming to the point that the Algorithm for long-term disease control of myeloma requires induction therapy, some form of consolidation, and some form of long-term maintenance, which leads us to the next three to four papers that deal with lenalidomide and second cancers. This probably is one of the most controversial and most spoken-about areas. Was Big time discussed at ASCO this year, discussed also in the Paris meeting of the International Myeloma Workshop. So in essence, we have, nobody had talked about second cancers with lenalidomide when it was being used as salvage therapy for relapsed refractory myeloma. We have never heard about a second cancer signal when lenalidomide was used as upfront therapy in the ECOG E4AO3 trial. And suddenly three randomized trials come out, two in the context of high-dose melphalin and one in the context of low-dose melphalin induction. Let's first talk about the Palumbo study using melphalin prednisone lenalidomide as induction versus melphalin prednisone lenalidomide followed by lenalidomide maintenance versus melphalin prednisone alone. And in that trial, the patients who received the lenalidomide as long-term therapy had a significant increase in second cancers as opposed to patients who did not receive long-term maintenance therapy with lenalidomide. The other two trials were both the transplant maintenance studies. One was the IFM study in which lenalidomide was given at doses between 5 to 15 milligrams daily, but this was after consolidation therapy with high-dose lenalidomide. And there again, the risk of second cancers was three to fourfold over patients that received placebo. And finally, the American trial, the clgb one hundred one hundred four, also showed that patients getting lenalidomide had a significant increase of or risk of a second cancer as opposed to patients who did not receive lenalidomide. Now, when we say it like that, people would say, oh, nobody should get lenalidomide maintenance. However, One has to balance this with the fact that the risk of relapse was significantly reduced in all three trials, to the point that even if I looked at second cancers as an event, patients who got lenalidomide maintenance were still benefiting in regards to long-term disease control or time to event. So what do we tell patients today? Reality is that only one of the trials, the CLGB-100-104, showed a decreased risk of death for patients getting lenalidomide, so there was a survival benefit, but this is just one trial, early times, further follow-up is needed. If all other trials show a survival benefit for lenalidomide maintenance, we go to the same conversations we have with all other patients. Look, this treatment is beneficial, but there is a risk, We think that the benefits far outweigh the risk, and therefore this is our recommendation and it should be standard of care.
0: So can you just talk a little bit more about exactly what was presented at ASCO, beginning with the Palumbo MM15 study? The progression-free survival for
1: patients getting long-term lenalidomide maintenance was a 59% reduction in the risk of progression, so significant benefit. When we look at secondary primary malignancies, the risk of a second primary malignancy is when we look at hematologic malignancies for patients getting lenalidomide long-term, it was 4.7%, 3.3% for those who just got lenalidomide as induction versus 0.7% for those who did not get lenalidomide. So that's a fourfold increase in risk. And these hematologic malignancies were between AML, MDS, and some lymphoid malignancies. There was also an increased risk of solid tumors, but this was not statistically significant. The other study that was presented was a study from the European Myeloma Network in which they look at the incidence of second primary malignancies in the normal population. And I think what's important is we start trying to balance the risk-benefit ratio of long-term lenalidomide therapy in patients with myeloma is we need to recognize that many of these patients already have an expected second cancer rate and that, you know, this has to be balanced in the context of the significant benefit that lenalidomide gives in regards to long-term disease control. So the other trial was the BIRD trial. So Dr. Adriana Rossi from Ruben Nesvisky's group in Cornell here in New York looked at the risk of developing second primary malignancies in patients who received the combination of biaxin, lenalidomide, dexamethasone, which is the combination that Ruben developed as BIRD. And I think the most important thing here was, again, the risk of secondary primary cancers was extremely low. I mean, if you think about that, you know, they had more than 100 patients treated, and there were 11 second malignancies seen, five solid tumors and six non-invasive skin cancers. This was probably within the realm of probabilities that this patient population would have had had they not gotten lenalidomide therapy. Once again, because this is a group of patients which already have a high risk of second cancers. The third study that was presented at ASCO was a long-term follow-up of both refractory relapse studies that were done to get lenalidomide licensed for treatment of relapse and refractory myeloma. The lead author was Dr. Demopoulos, and the senior author was Dr. Weber. So here they had a long follow-up, more than 470 patient years in the lenalidomide group versus 220 for the placebo group. And when they look at the incidence of observed versus expected second cancers, the incidence was relatively the same. So at least in the refractory relapse setting, and many of these patients had already received high-dose malflin, et cetera there did not seem to be an increased risk of second primary cancers. So, and this is my speculation. I think if we look at what does a practicing physician have to do today? So the first thing is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, can lenalidomide produce second cancers? Well, we need to remember that this is a drug that has stem cell activity. We use to treat MDS with it, and it affects stem cell collection. So it is biologically plausible that this drug can affect stem cells to a point that there may be development of second cancers. Second, it doesn't seem to be a very common phenomenon, but where it happens, it happens after prolonged alkylator therapy exposure or right after high-dose alkylating agent exposure, such as the transplant setting. So, you know, outside of the context of a clinical trial, who do I start lenalidomide maintenance on? anybody who has not achieved a complete remission, or anybody who's at high risk for relapse, even if they had achieved a complete remission. Now, I don't start it at the first three months. I think I'm now delaying it five to six months after transplant, because I think the perfect storm is to give a drug that may be stem cell toxic right at the time when these stem cells are starting to proliferate and find their essential microenvironment.
0: So let's talk a little bit about bone targeted therapy. And there were a couple oral presentations at ASCO out of the MRC, which we've been seeing some stuff out of now for about a year looking at zoledronic acid. Can you talk about what those papers looked at? So, and I guess, you know, I'm parenthetically, or
1: maybe I'll ask a question to you to make it interactive. When you do your research across the country, Am I correct in assuming that most of practicing oncologists are currently saying two years of bisphosphonate therapy, whether they use pomidronate or solindronic acid, it's a little bit of the local flavor or, you know, some logistic issues. But after two years, there's no clear guidance of what to do, and it's a little bit the luck of the draw.
0: Yeah, two years at the most with both investigators and oncologists in practice. And of course, that's what the guidelines have been saying for a while. But in the MRC9 study, the patients got bisphosphonates, quote, at least until disease progression and in general for a prolonged time. So this has been a very controversial
1: area. The data that led to the approval of bisphosphonates was usually, I mean, was bisphosphonates for two years. So we really don't know what the benefit of giving these drugs for more than two years is. They are associated with side effects, renal side effects, and osteonecrosis of the jaw. Although these side effects are rare, they do occur. And besides that, there's the cost of giving these drugs once a month when at least in the osteoporotic setting, you can give these drugs once a year and they're good enough to prevent skeletal events. Not only that, there are a lot of other bisphosphonates, some of them orally available, a lot easier to give. So there were a couple of trials that were presented, and I think the most important one was the MRC trial. And the big question here is, this was a randomized trial. It was presented by Dr. Davies from the Institute of Cancer Research in the Royal Marsden. It was the myeloma 9 trial. 1900 patients with multiple myeloma with stage 1, 2, or 3 disease were randomized to either receive solindronic acid, which is the traditional intravenous drug that we use commonly in the United States, versus clodronate, which was given 1600 milligrams a day orally. Now, the problem with this trial is that, you know, there really was a heterogeneous group of patients treated either intensively or non intensively, depending on their age. But I mean, to make a long story short and to surprise of everybody, we all expected that zoledronic acid was going to be superior in regard of reduction of the risk of skeletal related events versus clodronate. So when you look at reduction in a percentage of patients developing SREs, it was 27% over a three-year period for zoledronic acid versus 35% for patients with clodronate, and that was statistically significant. More importantly, the benefit of zolindronic acid was not only seen after the first year, it was seen after the second year, and it was seen even beyond three years. So think about it. So Mrs. Smith, you have not had a skeletal-related event after three years of zolindronic acid. Should we keep you on it or should we stop it? Well, Dr. Geralt, the randomized trial from the MRC showed that if I stayed on clodronate, my risk of a skeletal-related event would be 7% versus less than 3% if I stayed on solindronic acid. And it seems that the reduction of skeletal-related event risk was the same after the first, second, third, and fourth year. Moreover, there was a survival benefit. So based on this trial, you would say that everybody should get this drug monthly until progression. And I would say that's not necessarily the conclusion I would take from it. I would take the conclusion that prolonged bisphosphonate therapy is probably beneficial. Whether they need to get it monthly or whether we could go to every three months, every six months, or once a year is an open question. My current practice is that at two years, I do a bone density. If the patient's bone density is still decreased, I keep them on quarterly, zoledronic acid instead of once a month. If they have no lytic lesions and their bone density is normal, we have a long conversation. And this one, I don't think that this trial gives me the support to continue monthly zolindronic acid in a patient who has no bone lesion and has a normal bone density. I might give it to them on a regular basis, maybe once a year, once every six months. But it is strong data, and I think we need to include it in our patient conversations.
0: They've speculated and have speculated since this first came out about why this might be occurring. What are your thoughts about, if this is really there, what the exact mechanism is? There's been a lot of discussion about whether the solendronic acid actually
1: has effects on the microenvironment and have a quote-unquote anti-myeloma effect. I actually think that anything that reduces skeletal-related events will also impact survival, because you imagine, a patient who fractures a vertebral body or a patient who fractures a hip, particularly older patients, these are patients who end up in bed, who end up debilitated, who end up frail. And frailty is a significant risk factor for mortality. So I think that there is a survival benefit that is associated with the reduction in risk of skeletal-related events. I don't know if there is actually an improvement in disease control based upon this, although one can assume and speculate that a patient who doesn't have skeletal-related events is a patient of better performance status, and this patient's going to tolerate treatment better.